Okay, we were cl- when we closed the other day, we were talking about the numbers uh, in the book of Numbers. We're talking about the genealogies there. We want to pick up with a little bit about that, uh, as well as covering things from Numbers chapters 1 through 4. I realized at the end of class the other day there were some things that I wanted to say, intended to say, I didn't get to say. Uh, I hope the notes, and I know it's a lot of them, I hope they can help you if you read through the text and look back at them, that they can provide some help. Let me tell you a good, a really good source on the book of Numbers, because our goal is to impart knowledge, and a lot of that is just going to be to point you to some of the better sources. But this is an older commentary by Gordon Wynn. I've read it three or four times. It was originally published in 1981. But in the Tyndale series, Gordon Wenham, it is brief, as you see. Uh, it is it is very good, and um, it's not it's not really that extensive. I mean, he comes to the point quick uh, and says some really good things. Uh, I'm not sure how much that sells for these days, but it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. So if you want to. If you want to see more about that, uh, feel free to, to ask more later. Now, about the numbers in the book of Numbers. How many people came out of the land of Egypt? How many people did we say the other day? Men? Yeah, of the men 20 years old and upwards, yes. 603,500 and... 603,550. And these were the men, and not simply the men, but these were the fighting men. Uh, men from 20 years old and up. Those who were able to go to battle. And we estimated that that population may have been as large as 2 million. Now, there are some passages that definitely seem to speak as this group going through the desert as a huge multitude. That seems to be the emphasis of Moses' words when he talks, when God said he's going to feed Israel with meat for a month. And he says, should all the flocks and herds be slaughtered? Or should all the fish of the sea be caught? That is just an incredible amount of people uh, to feed. Uh, Psalm uh, 78 does the same thing. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? How could He provide such a great uh, food for such a great amount of people? So there are some passages that seem to speak of them as a huge multitude. Others that may lead us to question that. Uh, For example, they're not going to take possession of the land all at once because the wild beast would overcome them, we're told in Exodus 23, verses 29 and 30, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse 22. So, in, in my math assignment that I gave you, and some of you were already trying to give the answers the other day, but if... If they have, as we will find, 22,000 
273 firstborn. How, what is the proportion between firstborn and male population? We emphasize here a full education. We emphasize math. We emphasize all the other uh, skills. Uh, but but what would that what would that be? Well, it's close to one to thirty. I think I heard yeah. somebody say it's just under that. Yeah, I think it is around uh, twenty seven to one. So that means that. Each mother in Israel had around 27 sons. And we would probably guess then a comparable amount of daughters. And, and women had 54 children. And they were just tougher in those days than we are <laughs> in, in, in days today. But you see the difficulty with that number. Now, what's the alternative here? I'm not saying either the numbers aren't literal. I'm not saying that. I would tend to lean that way. But I am saying there are difficulties that I understand. And on a passage like this, I try to just give a couple of explanations without being definitive as to exactly what the answers are. But this is the best explanation that I have heard. I mentioned several in the notes, but the best explanation that I have heard is the term that is used for thousands can be a term that is indefinite, that it does not necessarily mean that each of the 603 Thousand were made up of literally 1,000 people, but they were 603 units, which may consist of groups less than a thousand. Um, for example, when you come to the New Testament and Jesus says that I could have called 10 I'm quoting this song. 10,000 angels. He actually says, I could have called a 12 legions of angels. How many soldiers were in a legion? Have you ever heard that stated a sermon? How many sermons, uh, soldiers were in a legion? It was like a thousand. It was closer to 6,000. But often in reality, Roman legions weren't exactly 6,000. And that's what I'm saying is possible about the numbers. I'm not saying anything definitive here. Because I admit, this is difficult. And I'm not sure of the answers. Um, But it could be, if there, I don't go along with the explanation, well, this is the census and these are real numbers, but they're just from a different time in Israel's history. No, no. Now that's a proposal given by people like W.L. Fulbright. I, I don't think that will fly at all. I think that we take the numbers as literal or we have to say something like I just said of the word thousands. I think those are the best explanations. 
Any questions right there or ideas about that? Are there, are there other examples in the New Testament of numbers that large? Okay, you'll be thinking of the Old Testament primarily. I'm sorry, Old Testament. But yes, this is a problem throughout the Old Testament where you have these kinds of numbers. Let me give you one illustration, Craig. Uh, look in um, 2 Chronicles 14. 2 Chronicles 14. Okay. 2 Chronicles 14, you have in verse 8, Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. So here Asa's army, which distinguishes who's from Judah and who's from Benjamin, is made up of 580,000 men. Pretty large army. But it doesn't compare to the army that he's fighting against. In verse 9, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marishah. Now, I don't know what our United States Army, how many people it consisted. I don't know how many people are presently in the Chinese Army, but those numbers these are pretty (coughs) staggering numbers for the world in 900 BC uh, for this to be their fighting population now you just asked the question do we encounter this at other places in the Old Testament yes Uh, and I will have to prepare Something on each of these passages to come up with a good answer for that. I don't have a good answer. But a lot of it may tie to just what we're saying. It may be that particular term, thousands. Like the, a million is a thousand thousands. And if it was made of a thousand units, which didn't quite equal a thousand men, that may be a little bit different of a story there. Um, does, does the people do you follow the expert? I know you need time to think about it and even decide what's right or wrong. But 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 do you understand it, so, Sarah? You said something. Yeah. So the word million here in verse nine is that in the Hebrew is that thousand thousand. I think it is a thousand thousand, okay. but I don't have the Chronicles, the Hebrew text of Chronicles, with me right now. But I'll try to look that up. But I do I do think that that is the case. And uh, certainly, we could have like 300 units from Judah and 280 from Benjamin in that particular case. But I think that is the case. Remind me, you all, to look that up. Uh, Anything else? Okay. But numbers one and two, is there anything that you all wanted to ask a question about? the other day or make a comment about that you did not have opportunity to. If not, let's go into Numbers chapter 3. Numbers 3, 
And these chapters, Numbers 3 and 4, are going to deal with the Levites and focus on the Levites. The first 13 verses, um, uh, we'll read these and look at these. Claire, would you want to read verses 1 through 13 of Numbers 3? Now these are the records of the generation of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These then are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of their father Aaron. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall anoint Aaron and his sons, that they may keep their priesthood. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel, instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Okay, very good. Very good. Thank you. Um, the genealogy of Aaron is one of the most important genealogies in the Old Testament. That, along with the tribe of Judah. Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah. But the reason the tribe of Aaron is so important, the reason the family of Aaron and their genealogy is so important, is because the priesthood is a hereditary office. The priesthood is a hereditary office. I can only think... Of one case in the Old Testament. And I'll leave that to you to see if you can find it. But I can only think of one case in the Old Testament where it seems like a man was a prophet whose father was a prophet. Being a prophet was not a hereditary office. Being a priest was a hereditary office. And even after they come back from Babylonian captivity, and some could not prove they were descendants of Aaron, they were not allowed to serve as priests. That's in Ezra 2, excuse me, yeah, Ezra 2, 61 through 63. Ezra 2, 61 through 63, and Nehemiah 7, 63 through 65. When you get to Chronicles, in the first nine chapters of Chronicles are genealogies. But 1 Chronicles 6, 1 through 15, traces the family of Aaron from his time to Babylonian captivity and beyond. And with all the genealogies in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 through 9, chapters 1 through 9, only two families are traced 
from their beginning until after Babylonian captivity. They are Aaron and just guess who would be the other. It, close, but David particularly is the one I'm focusing on the family within that. And um, so, First Chronicles chapter 6. So, Aaron's genealogy, Aaron's family, he has four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. Now, Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before the Lord, and they died in His presence. That's recorded in Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2, and it's repeated here in Numbers 3, verse 4. They do not have any children. Therefore, the priesthood is going to come through the line of Eliezer and through the line of Ithamar. Now, this note, though, about Nadab and Abihu is very important because it helps to set the tone of Numbers 3 and 4. It sets the tone of the seriousness of God's holiness. Again, as we stated the other day, we rejoice in God's presence. It is a cause of celebration that God will dwell with man, but always His presence must be taken with the utmost reverence. And here you will find constant warnings in Numbers 3, in Numbers 4, that a violation of His holiness will result in death, you see that in Numbers 3 verse 4 from this example, then in verse 10, so you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood, but the layman who comes near shall be put to death in 3 verse 10. On verse 38, the Bible says pretty much the same thing, that the layman coming near was to be put to death. Then in Numbers 4, you find that same kind of warning. In Numbers 4, in verse 15, and in Numbers 4, in verses 19 and 20, the sons of Kohath are particularly warned that if they look at the Ark of the Covenant or touch the Ark of the Covenant, they will die. God's holiness must be treated with the utmost reverence. Now I want to tell you something that's really striking to me and that hit me today in reading Wenham. He didn't specifically come out and tie all the pieces together, but this was very helpful. And what he stated, you were considered qualified and competent to go to war at 20. You weren't considered qualified to move the tabernacle to your 30. Is that because going to war is less physically demanding than moving the tabernacle? I can't imagine that would be the case. I think it is the case that probably that is hopefully that the increased age results in increased maturity and increased seriousness with which you treat God's holiness. Now think about that. 
You couldn't move the tabernacle until you were 30. But, so, there's going to be a focus on Aaron. Uh, Also, I want to emphasize too that this word that's used here, translated offered in Genesis 3-4, that that same word is used in 3-6 where they're told to bring the Levites near. Uh, It is used in 3-10. The layman who comes near shall be put to death. And in verse 38. But it is a word that is often used for the priest and their responsibility to draw near to the presence of God. Drawing near to the presence of God is a blessing of which none of us are worthy, but it is also a profound responsibility. But the Bible tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses. He said, bring the tribe of Levi near so that they might serve you. And their responsibilities, the responsibilities of the Levites, they serve Aaron in verse 6. In verse 9, they serve Aaron and his sons. But verse 7 mentions their responsibilities. They shall perform the duties for him, for the whole congregation, before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. Now, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8 are important. Jacob Milgram, in his commentary uh, on the book of Numbers, states that this responsibility to... Uh, that's, that's labeled sometimes to keep, sometimes to guard uh, the tabernacle, that that refers to the responsibilities when they are camped. And the responsibility here, he says, to do and to serve in these verses refer particularly to their responsibilities when they are moving from one place to another. That 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 word is used in chapter 3 and chapter 4 to talk about moving the ark from one place to another. But also these two words, in Hebrew, these are the two words. Now, they are used together... Several times in the Old Testament. They're used together here in Numbers 8. They also refer to the responsibilities of the Levites in in Numbers 8, verses 25 and 26. But let me tell you another place they're used together. Genesis 2 and verse 15. And they are stated to Adam. And these two words are used to refer to his responsibilities to the garden. He is to, to uh, keep it and uh, to keep... Cultivate? And cultivate is how it's translated. Yes, exactly. To keep and to cultivate. But the fact that these two verbs are used together for Adam's responsibilities in the garden and they're used together to talk about the Levites' responsibility to the tabernacle in the book of Numbers stresses the idea 
that the Garden of Eden was a type of a tabernacle and a type of a temple where God and man were dwelling together. Now you remember the way that story ended. The way that story ended as man is put in the garden to cultivate and keep it is ultimately man and women sin. They are driven out of the garden. The angels are left to guard the entrance to the tree of life. And by the way, the word guard is the same word used here uh, in that case. But that ended out in man excluded from the garden. The story of the tabernacle and temple is going to ultimately come to the point where that temple is destroyed because of man's sins and man's wickedness. But God is going to reestablish the temple. What I'm trying to say to you is this. That in a way, the story of the Bible is the story of the temple. It's the story of the tabernacle. It's the story of God continuing to seek to dwell with man and man's sins driving him away and yet God not giving up on man but God continuing to seek to bring man into a relationship with himself. We see that over and over and over. That's too cool. It's, it's powerful. It's powerful. Phil Roberts was the one who first put me on to that 35 years ago. When he said that and when he tied it together throughout Scripture, I, I just marveled. And I said, how could he bring all these points together? And after studying all these many years, and this is no insult to Phil Roberts who helped me immensely in his teaching, I think, the point is not that feels so brilliant. The point is, how in the world did I miss that? How did I miss that? Because it is so clear throughout Scripture. But I can point you to a source where he wrote about that, if any of you all are, are interested in that. Now, that is the function of the Levites right here. We're going to see in verses 14 through 39 that they also play a part in moving the tabernacle. Now, in verses 11 through 13, the Bible says that the firstborn had been dedicated to God, and in this case, it is the Levites who are going to take the place of the firstborn. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back to Exodus 11 and Exodus 12. And the last plague on Egypt was what? Death of the firstborn in Exodus chapter 11 and Exodus 12. The death of the firstborn. And it's especially highlighted around Exodus 11 verses 3 through 5 and Exodus 12 verses 29 through 30. Right after that, God says in Exodus 13 verse 2 and Exodus 13 verse 12 that all the firstborn in Israel are to be given to the Lord. In memory of what God has done. In memory of all God's blessings. And how God saved us from Egypt. You are to dedicate your firstborn to the Lord. Now, how did that work? 
probably like we see it work with the Levites, that they are given to full-time service to the Lord. doesn't mean they sacrificed them, but it does mean they were to be dedicated to the Lord. But what we see here is that the Levites will take the place of the firstborn. There were still special sacrifices offered in the case of a firstborn child. We'll see that even in the time of Jesus, won't we? In Luke 2, verses 22 through 24. But the point is that the Levites are going to take their place. And a lot of the next two chapters, particularly this chapter, is going to deal with this. Then when we get to Numbers 8, we're going to see this kind of idea resurface once again. Now, we have to take a census. They take a census of the Levites. A census of the Levites uh, from one month and up. Now, now here this census is not for the purpose of moving the tabernacle. That will be from 30 to 50. But this is just a census to see how many there are. Now, there were three... Levi had three sons. Three sons. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And what we'll find is... 3 verses 21 through 26 will talk about the people from Gershon and 3 27 through 31 Kohath and 3 32 through 37 Merari. And what these sections will do, it will begin by talking about uh, how they take this census from one month and up. You see that in verse 22. You see that in verse 28. You see that in verse 34. It then gives the numbers. And then it will designate what parts of the tabernacle these various tribes are to carry when they move from place to place. The tabernacle is a temporary structure. It is a building that can be taken down, a building that can be reassembled. And they need that when they are traveling through this wilderness, when they don't have a final resting place yet. And he assigns to various officers or various families within Levi this responsibility as to what to move. Now what Gershon moved is specifically stated in 3 verse 25 and 26. They removed, the text says, they removed the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the tent, its covering, the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the, the court, the screen for the doorway of the court around the tabernacle, and to all uh, the service according to it. And... Um, it also talks about where each of these tribes count. And we'll say more about that in just a second. But then in Kohath, 
Kohath and their responsibilities as to what they were moving, moving is stated in 331. They moved the holy objects themselves. They moved the furniture of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant and the table of His presence, and the altar of incense. And these things are what's moved by the family of Kohath. Merari moves the boards and the planks and uh, all the other things of the tabernacle. And that is stated in verses 35 and 36. And so Numbers 3 is going to spell out, verses 14 through 39, going to spell out this. Verses 38 and 39 summarize this. Those who were count before the tabernacle eastward, before the tent of meeting, toward the sunrise, are Moses and Aaron and his sons performing the duties of the sanctuary for the obligation of the sons of Israel. But the layman coming near shall be put to death. All the numbered men of the Levites whom Moses and Aaron uh, numbered at the command of the Lord by their families, every male from month old and upward were 22,000. Okay? Any questions right here about this? Is Karen. It seems curious to me that they would number them from one month old. Is there any significance to that? I mean, all the other tribes were 20. Mm-hmm. They were Because yes. they were in an army. Re- or? Yes, remember though, there's a totally different purpose to that. Sure. That was to indicate the people able to go to war. This, in this particular passage, is just going to see how many of them there are. Okay. So, there is a different purpose in this particular census. Now, chapter 4 is going to arrive at a different number because they're counting for a different reason. Um, But yes, John. So you had to be 30 as a Levite to serve. Uh, What age for a priest to serve? A son of Aaron. Do we know that? I don't know if that is stated. Let's keep our eyes open for that, but I do not know... Uh, if if that is stated in the Old Testament, okay. Now I want to try to draw. This is this is not intended to be to scale. Okay, here we're going to just draw a very small tabernacle because our purpose here is not to focus right now on the tabernacle, but to focus on the groups around the tabernacle. Now you may remember we're going to try first of all remember which tribes camped where. Judah was in a position of leadership of the tribes, and when they march out, Judah's going to march first. Then uh, you have the tribe of Reuben here, the tribe of uh, Ephraim camped on this side, but I need to put more distance here. Reuben, because I'm going to have to fit in the Levite, then Ephraim. And then Dan. Now, first of all, let me encourage you, get that down. If you can focus on where the other tribes were, that's really good. Behind Judah, there is Zebulun and Naphtali. Issachar, that's right. See? See, I'm testing you people. Zebulun and Issachar. I'm not going to get them all right, perhaps. 
Ephraim is real easy. Okay? Manasseh and Benjamin. Why is that easy? They're all the descendants of Rachel. Here's the descendants of Rachel right here. Reuben is with Simeon, the next oldest, and Gad. And then Dan is with uh, Naphtali and Asher. Now, is that correct? Okay. That's correct. Okay. Now, they count an appropriate distance from the tabernacle. The priest are over here. This is where Aaron and Moses and his sons are. This is where Kohath, who carries the most holy objects, are. This is where Gershon is. And this would be where Merari camps. Now, this is a little interesting fact. But when we get to chapter 10... We're going to find, like, the tribes seem to move out this tribe first, this tribe second, this tribe third, this tribe fourth. Okay, that's the way the tribes move out. Levites doesn't go like that. Levites, Gershon, and Merari go after these first two groups, and Kohath goes after the third group. And you read that in 10. Verses 17 through 21. Why do you think that may be? This is a suggestion. Based on what they're carrying. Based on what they're carrying. And these groups have that tabernacle set up ready to move in the holy objects once they get there. That seems to be the purpose. Okay? So, get this down. It will be on your test. Okay? So so get that down. John? Does the ark lead the way? It, it, no, the ark does not lead the way. Not in their traveling to the wilderness, it doesn't seem. There's a reference to the ark in Numbers 10, 33-36. Let's, let's, let's wait till we get there and see what we do with that. But as far as I remember, the ark is carried by Kohath between these third and fourth divisions or a first and second division. It was that reference that made me ask it. Okay. Where does it say in front of them? 1033, the ark moved in front of them. Was that just when they went to battle or was that everything? But let's, let's wait till we get there because I didn't get a, I didn't look at that carefully and I didn't look at that question carefully. It's a good question. I just don't have a good answer right now. In, in verse, verses 31, chapter 30, chapter 3, verses 40 through 51, they tell us that there were more, uh, there were less Levites, 22,000, than there were firstborn, which were 22,273. So you got 273 extra firstborn. And if they're a substitute, you, you don't have substitutes for 273 of them. What they do is each of these 273, it's not sure who paid this. Did all the firstborn pay this? Did just the 273 pay this? But, but they each paid five shekels 
which equals 1,365 shekels. Is that correct? 1,365 shekels. And so, five shekels, why is that the prize? That was the prize of a male um, servant to be dedicated to the Lord in Leviticus 27 between the age of one month and five years. And that might be something to relate that to. But any questions there about that? Any thoughts? No, this doesn't necessarily inspire a lot of thoughts. It would seem that being that specific about the discrepancy between that those would be more numbers. But yes, 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 I understand what you're saying. Here, definitely, I don't think anybody questions that. Um, and the the trouble is, how does that match the other numbers, which seem to make each of the families so extremely large? But you're right. This is a good point to make, and it needs to be taken into consideration when you're trying to come to a uh, conclusion here. I'm not saying your question, your statement is irrelevant. It's not, but it is a very good thought. But it's, but but how does that relate to the other larger numbers? Well, and I'm not disagreeing. Yeah, I understand. It's interesting, like. How are there an even 22,000? Like, that's a very even number for... So it's just interesting. Yeah. It's another element to consider, I guess. Yes. Yes, it is. It is. Um, okay. Let's go back to... Let's go to numbers four. What it's going to do, it's going to focus on these three... Families of Levites. Maybe I should have erased that. It's going to focus on these three families of Levites. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And what they carried. Kohath, which was mentioned in 3, from 27 to 31, is going to be mentioned in 4, from verses 1 through 20. Then Gershon... Mentioned in three twenty-one through twenty-six is mentioned here in four twenty-one through twenty-eight, and Marari is mentioned from three uh, thirty-two through thirty-seven and four twenty-nine through thirty-three. Now, Kohath moved the Kohath moved the most holy objects, the ones we are probably most familiar with, the ones like the Ark of the Covenant and the Bread of the Presence, they moved those. But interestingly, there's something different about Kohath's responsibilities. Kohath doesn't pack what they move. They don't pack what they move. The other tribes do. 
but it's the sons of Aaron. It's Aaron and his sons, if you look at verse 5, who go in and they take these various objects. 4 verse 5, Aaron and his sons. And over and over throughout this section, as it emphasizes what they move, it keeps using the pronoun they. And I think that they refers to Aaron and his sons. They take these objects. And they didn't just carry the Ark of the Covenant on poles either. The Ark of the Covenant was covered several times. Several times. Uh, in verse in verse 5, they shall... When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in. And when they take down the veil of the screen, they shall cover the ark with the test and the testimony with it. So they take down the screen, separated the holy place, the most holy place. They wrap it around the ark of the covenant. They also have a covering. The New American Standard says in verse six, a porpoise skin. Now. We could probably get a lot of different readings from that depending on what translation we looked at because we don't know exactly what this word is. Porpoise skin is a word used in the New American Standard. Then they cover it with a blue cloth and they inserted poles in the side. The the family of Kohath, when they move things, they carry them on poles... Or they move them on what is described in verse 10 and verse 12 as carrying bars. So they move it. They move with bars, carrying bars and poles. They do not touch the objects that they are carrying. They are warned in chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, that they may not look at the holy objects for even a moment or they will die. In 4.15, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering his holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so they may not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So, in 4.15 and 4.19 and 20... The family of Kohath is warned not to look at the holy objects, not to touch the holy objects, and the penalty for violation is death. When do we see that violated in Israel? Moving the ark ark to Jerusalem. The ox stumbles. The ox stumbles. 2 Samuel 6. Um, Second Samuel six, I think it's verses seven and eight. Um, that that happened. Second Samuel six, six and seven, and then it's also recorded in First Chronicles thirteen, verses nine and ten. Now, originally, David becomes angry when they do that, but he says in First Chronicles fifteen, this is only in Chronicles. He says this happened because we didn't move the ark properly the first time, and now the Levites carry it with poles. First Chronicles fifteen, verses two 
through 13 through 15. Now, why is God saying this? Is God simply wanting to strike these people dead? Or is it that God wants to cultivate a sense of holiness among the people? And God wants the people to reverence Him. I've been in services where I thought there was a whole lot of reverence and little joy. And I've been in services with a whole lot of joy and little reverence. But again, we want to balance. We want to balance those things. And see the series. You made a statement there, Sarah, about they moved it on poles. I'm going to tell you something that's interesting about that. They did move it on... They, they, excuse me, they moved it with the ox cart. Moved it with the ox cart. Do you know that when they're moving things in the tabernacle, that Gershon is given oxen and carts? They're given this, and we'll see that in number 7, verse 7. And Merari is given oxen and carts. In number 7, verse 8. But Kohath isn't given oxen cards. It's not just, we, we sometimes say, oh, the reason they moved it on ox cart is they're just imitating when the Philistines moved it. That's, the Philistines did move it like that. But there was something else in play. The other families of Levi did use oxen and carts to move the holy objects. But not Kohath. They were to move it. With the poles. Okay. Now, we'll see. We'll try to sum this up, Lord willing, on Sunday morning. And we'll spend, and I think we'll be able to sum it up pretty quickly. But I want you to read over it again. Look over the notes. See if you have questions. We'll spend the rest of our time, Lord willing, on Numbers 5 Sunday. Numbers 5 talks about the adultery test. What happens when a husband suspects his wife of adultery? And what does this tell us? What's the point here? Um, And so, Lord willing, we'll, we'll spend, after we finish what we missed in the rest of Numbers 4, we'll try to finish that up, Lord willing, on Sunday. Thank you for being here, and thank you for, for your interest.